If you don't believe that evil exists, you may change your mind after today's episode. For over 30 years, women and girls disappeared from the small towns that dot I-45 between Houston and Galveston, Texas. At least 30, and probably more. Since the early 1970s, someone, maybe more than one someone, has been snatching unsuspecting young women and killing them. What did they have in common? They met evil face to face. I want to welcome you back for another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. I'm so glad that you joined me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is Season 4, Episode 32. The book I picked for this week is Deliver Us, Three Decades of Murder and Redemption in the Infamous I-45 Texas Killing Fields by Katherine Casey. It's just you and me today, so let's dive in and investigate a bit of these women's stories. Nobody had heard the term serial killer when 13-year-old Colette Wilson disappeared on June 17, 1971 after leaving a band camp. By the time her body was found five months later on November 26, 14-year-old Brenda K. Jones, 14-year-old Rhonda Renee Johnson, 13-year-old Sharon Lynn Shaw, 19-year-old Gloria Ann Gonzalez, 12-year-old Allison Ann Craven, Debbie Catherine Ackerman, and Marie Talbot Johnson, both 15, all vanished, and their bodies were later found. Obviously, they had died violently. Stop and think about that for just a minute. Eight teens, and one a preteen actually, gone in less than a five-month time span along this short section of highway. Amber alerts just weren't a thing back then, and criminal profiling was in its infancy. So these cases all came down to local police efforts. They had so much in common that you just couldn't dismiss the possibility that one person might be responsible for all of them. By June of 1972, there was a new police chief in Webster, Texas, one of those small towns along I-45. He thought he knew exactly who that person was. The chief brought in gas station worker Michael Lloyd Self to question him. Self was read his Miranda rights, and within a couple of hours of the beginning of this interrogation, self-confessed. If only all officers were that good, we'd clear up cases a lot sooner, wouldn't we? Well, it was later discovered that Self's confession had some issues. He recanted, but that's not really that unusual. Because who wants to hand the prosecutors what they're going to need to put you away for life, or in some jurisdictions, even hand you a death penalty? But there were other officers in the station that day, and they would later state under oath that they heard the chief shouting at Self, demanding a confession. Others say they saw the chief threatening Self with a billy club. And those are just big, solid hunks of wood that can do a lot of damage if someone starts to beat you with them. Another officer claimed that he saw Self looking at the chief, wanting him to tell him what he should write in his confession. Since no one brought any of this up until they were forced to, Self was convicted of the murders of Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Interestingly, a few years after Self went to prison, 
The chief who was instrumental in sending him there was in a cell of his own. With other officers who worked Self's case, the chief was responsible for numerous bank robberies. And wouldn't you think that because this guy had been committing felonies while he possibly coerced a murder confession out of Michael Self, that Self's conviction might be overturned? You'd be right, but don't celebrate yet. Prosecutors decided to appeal the court's decision, and they won. A different court said that Self knew he had a right not to confess and that he'd waived it. But Self said he was so afraid of what the chief might do to him if he didn't confess that he felt like he had no other choice. Apparently that didn't matter. Self had the opportunity to be paroled years later if he would just take responsibility for the murders. He would not, and he died in prison in the year 2000. Another big clue that Self might not have been responsible for all, or maybe even any of these deaths, was the fact that while he was in prison, more girls died. 16-year-old Kimberly Pitchfork disappeared after going to a driver's ed class in January of 1973. Her body was found a few days later, face down in a bayou. She'd been strangled. Many of the other girls' bodies had been found in water as well, because it does wash away evidence. Less than two years after Kimberly died, 12-year-old Brooks Bracewell and 14-year-old Georgia Greer didn't show up for school one day. Their bodies wouldn't be found for almost another two years. I can't even imagine what these families go through in that time period where they're hoping still, but they just don't know. Then 12-year-old Susie Bowers disappeared as she walked home from her grandparents' house. Four more murdered girls, and they had a lot of similarities to that first group of girls. All were young. All went missing near that same stretch of I-45 between Houston and Galveston. 20 years after these cases went cold, Galveston police officer Fred Page had a suspect in mind. He was reinvestigating Maria Johnson and Debbie Ackerman's murders. Page decided to visit senior officer Carla Costello at the Texas City Police Department so that they could compare notes. Just think how differently things might have turned out if someone had done that in the midst of the killings. Page asked her if she had any suspects that really stood out to her. She most definitely did. A man named Edward Harold Bell. Her interest in him centered around the fact that he had confessed. Twice. Bell had written letters to the district attorneys for Harris County and Galveston County. And in those letters, he claimed to have murdered all of the girls that had died in the 70s along I-45. That included the two girls that Michael Self was serving time for killing. I don't know if anybody ever made Self's attorney aware of that. Bell had knowledge of the facts of the crime, but authorities argued that he could have learned about those details by reading newspaper articles about those crimes. I don't know if they actually checked to see what details were printed and what details he had said. It, it kind of felt like maybe they just made that assumption. Bell said that if they took him to court, he would deny responsibility because he had been brainwashed into killing the girls. That is really a new one for me. It is not a defense that I have heard of anybody else trying to use. So Paige decided that he had to dig a little bit deeper into Ed Bell's life. Bell moved to Galveston just before the first girl vanished, Colette Wilson. He was starting over after having just been released from a psychiatric program to deal with his habit of exposing himself to young girls. 
On the island, he managed to partner up with another man in a surf shop. And lots of young girls hung out there. Bell drove a white van that seemed awfully similar to one witnesses described some of the victims as getting into when they were last seen. Of course, with the type of behavior that Bell was exhibiting, it was only a matter of time before he got caught exposing himself again. And this time, he attacked a man who tried to detain him until the police could come and get him. Bell shot the man multiple times in the chest, killing him. Amazingly, he was able to post bail and checked himself back into the psychiatric hospital. Now, I'm not shocked, and you probably won't be either, to hear that Bell did not show up for his next court appearance. He was on the run. Coincidentally, or maybe not, young girls stopped being murdered along I-45 for a time. In 1983, another killing spree began. Laura Miller was 16 when she vanished after leaving the house that her family was moving into so that she could call her boyfriend from a payphone. That was at a convenience store, just a block away from I-45. Since her parents were at work that day, they didn't realize she was missing at first. But then when her boyfriend came to the house looking for her, they started to worry. They began driving around, just up and down all of the streets, just looking for their daughter. They were afraid that she had had another one of the seizures that she suffered from. They called police, but they didn't seem really concerned. Even with the number of young girls who had disappeared from the area and then been found murdered, they tended to treat any cases like this as probable runaways. Then Laura's father, Tim, learned that months earlier, another young woman had vanished. That woman, Heidi Fye, was a frequent customer at the convenience store where Laura had gone to make that phone call. When Tim asked police if the cases could be connected, he was quickly told no. But Laura's body would later be found in that same abandoned field where Heidi's had been found, and it was laid out in roughly the same position. While investigators were processing the scene for evidence, they found another body. At the time that Catherine Casey wrote this book, that woman was still known as Jane Doe. Tim's life spiraled out of control after his daughter's death until another body was found in that field. Like Jane Doe, this woman could not be identified, and she was called Janet Doe. A suspect was finally identified, retired NASA engineer Robert Abel. Abel leased property adjacent to where these four bodies were found, and police thought he seemed just a little too interested in the case, and a little too eager to give police his theories about the dead girls. Even though they tried really hard, Police just couldn't find solid evidence that would tie Abel to the killings. Frustrated, Tim sued for the right to see his daughter's case file. After he reviewed it and asked about getting some evidence retested, he was told it had been lost. To help ease his own stress, and because he knew what the parents of missing children were going through, he often volunteered to help with searches. This led to the founding of EquiSearch. You might have heard of that. This group has helped look for people such as Elizabeth Smart, Kaylee Anthony, and Natalie Holloway. Tim came to believe, after years, that maybe Robert Abel wasn't the man who killed his daughter. So who was? Police had briefly suspected a man named Clyde Edwin Hedrick. In 2012, they renewed their interest in his connections to the dead woman and the area where they'd all been found. That led them to add a woman named Ellen Beeson, to the list of those that Hedrick may have murdered. He was arrested, and multiple inmates that he was housed with claimed that he confessed to murdering Ellen Beeson, Laura Miller, 
and Heidi Fye. He was convicted of killing Ellen Beeson and sentenced to 20 years in prison. He didn't implicate himself in the murder of Jane or Janet Doe. And soon, a twist worthy of a Law & Order episode would come to light. Yet another man claimed from prison that he had killed some of the women from the Texas killing fields. Mark Roland Stallings spoke to the book's author, and he told her that when he was about seven years old, he first felt the thrill of putting his hands around a girl's neck while she struggled to breathe. Nice kid. As an adult, he wound up as the foreman of a small ranch, a ranch owned by none other than Robert Abel. He says they found that they had a lot in common. I'm not sure why I would want to know what all of those things might be. I've noticed over the years that people who commit terrible crimes usually have a very twisted type of logic. Like Ed Bell, who said that he had killed the earliest killing field victims, but it was because he'd been brainwashed into doing it. Now Stallings was claiming that he'd made up those confessions so that he would be taken out to the scene to help authorities find more evidence. His plan was that while he was out, he would find a way to escape. It didn't work. The killings continued into the 90s. 13-year-old Crystal Jean Baker disappeared March 5, 1996 from a store not far from I-45. Again, police just said, well, she's a runaway. But she wasn't. A determined property clerk who just couldn't let go of the case managed to get Crystal's clothes tested at a lab and found a DNA match. It was Kevin Smith, who grew up in the area of the killing fields. He'd been arrested in Louisiana on a drug charge, and that's why his DNA was in the system. Good job, Louisiana, for collecting DNA from all felons, not just sex offenders and murderers like some states. But he didn't kill 12-year-old Laura Smither, 20-year-old Kellyanne Cox, or 17-year-old Jessica Lee Kane. That was the twisted work of William Lewis Reese, who was convicted of killing them, as well as sexual assaults, a kidnapping, and a murder in another state. 17-year-old Michelle Doherty Thomas was last seen on October 5, 1985, after she returned from work at a Galveston, Texas gas station. She remains missing. So does Sandra K. Ramber, who was 14 and last seen at her family's home in Santa Fe. 19-year-old Shelley Kathleen Sykes was last seen leaving her job as a waitress on the beachfront in Galveston on May 24, 1986. Her car was found the next day, stuck in mud, bloodstained, and abandoned on the side of Interstate 45. She has never been found. 22-year-old Suzanne Renee Richardson disappeared from that same general area, and there are probably more who belong on this list. Now, were they all killed by one of the men that we talked about today? Or is there yet another I-45 killer? And why that stretch of I-45 in South Texas? There are some different theories, but I think the better question to ask is, why not? We have to give a lot of credit to the book's author, who pulled together all kinds of records helping connect a lot of these cases together. And crimes like these can happen anywhere, and they do in every state, in the U.S., and all around the world. Authorities will say that the number of active serial killers peaked in the 70s, but I wonder if maybe some of these killers are just getting savvier. Look at how long the Long Island serial killer was active. 15 years, and they just recently caught him. 
And I hope that part of the reason it seems like serial killers aren't as prolific as they used to be is because that as a society, we're just becoming more cautious. That's one of the reasons that I tell these stories. I want to honor these victims' lives. But I also hope that when you listen, you pick up tidbits here and there that you can use in your daily life to be a bit more on guard, not afraid. I don't want anyone to think that the only way to stay safe is to live in fear. Jesus gave his disciples a lesson about that. And that's a passage that I'm going to dive into today. The 10th chapter of Matthew describes Jesus sending out his disciples to spread the word about the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. After telling them all what they would need to do, Jesus got very real with them, saying, Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. In every woman's story that I shared today, they were certainly sheep among wolves. All were young. Some were very, very young. They didn't understand the nature of wolves. They were innocents who didn't know that they were in the midst of predators. While I was prepping for this episode, I learned something about wolves. Because wolves tend to be dispersed across a wider area than their preferred prey are, they will adapt and basically feed on whatever's handy. Their kill rates are highest when their prey has come through a tough winter and is weaker than usual. And when humans don't intervene and keep their population under control, they can multiply very, very rapidly. That all hits pretty close to home, doesn't it? The women who lost their lives to these murderous wolves were chosen because they were simply there. They were in vulnerable seasons, some due to instability in their home lives, some simply due to their tender age and lack of life experience. Not one of them deserved what happened to her. So the question I want us to really think about after we've, we've taken in all this information Think about how do we prepare ourselves and our loved ones to be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. It starts by being aware that the wolves of this world are purposefully looking for sheep to harm. Sometimes people make evil choices simply because they want to. We have to acknowledge that. You cannot protect yourself from something that you're not aware of. We also have to be gentle. Hiding away and treating everybody like they're out to get us does not serve God's purposes. And we can't be a person of impact that way. So I'm going to ask you, please find at least one person that you can share something you learned from this episode so that they can be safer too. And I would love it if you would share what that something is. Send me an email at lori, L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on Facebook at The Unlovely Truth or Instagram at The Unlovely Truth Podcast. I love it when people are willing to have these hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.